Hey everyone, I'm Charlie Shrem, and this episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by BitPay, Electronium, and Permian Chain. Check them out more later in the episode. What's up, everyone? <laughs> I am Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories, hopefully watching Untold Stories because we're on YouTube and audio, where twice a week we dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders to find out how this movement truly came to be. This show is powered by my good friends and my producers at the BlockWorks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network, including mine and my friends. So check them out at blockworksgroup.io. With that, today's guest is a potential new friend, Diogo Monica. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Charlie. (laughs) Yes. You're the co-founder and president. You don't really hear people calling themselves presidents. It's usually CEO. So I'm going to ask you about that. You're the co-founder and president of Anchorage very well-known digital asset platform. Um, you guys were the founding member, one of the founding members of the Libra Association. And I actually talked to one of your, uh, an associate company of yours and uh, another founding member. And um, it was um, Bison Bison Trails, right? And great company. So we'll talk about that as well. Um, but before we get into any of that, you were, we were talking earlier about, you know, where we live and everything. Um, and you asked me why Florida and my answer has always been the same, but my answer today was different because I said that um, I did what everyone's doing now with COVID. I did this four years ago, but it's crazy to think that, that everyone is doing this. What, why are you still in San Francisco? Are you going to stay there? What's the what's your plan? Yeah, there's currently an ongoing debate with my partner, Molly, and I are, are debating whether it's worth staying or um whether we should leave. Uh, I do have to say that I spent the majority of this year in Portugal, uh, hanging out with family. And I love Portugal. Are you place. Portuguese? Yes, yes, yes. I was actually born in the US, but I went back when I was three, but I grew up in Portugal. All my education was in Portugal. Uh, and then a company called Square flew me out of uh, Lisbon in 2011, so 10 years ago. Screw that company. I hate that company, Square. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love Square. <laughs> It's a good um, company. I'm still um, too vested irrationally. Uh, no, I'm, I'm a hodler uh, before Bitcoin. <laughs> I I uh, I found out recently that because um, I always look through these old emails, like because I I have a lot of these old emails, and I found out recently that the CEO of Stripe, what's his name? It's got red hair. Patrick Collison. Patrick. He emailed me about Bitcoin in 2011. Came to the Bit Instant offices in New York, and like. We talked about Bitcoin and then he left. And that was, and one day later, I'm like, who's this guy with this big company? It was so, it's happened so many times. It's crazy how many people came through the early days of Bitcoin to learn about it, kind of dismissed it and moved on. And now years later, uh, a lot of Bitcoin OGs, with myself included, like I read about Bitcoin and I dismissed it at first and then uh, moved on from it. And a lot of, a lot of people um, have been doing that too. It's, it's kind of crazy. How did you get into the space? I got into the space through the academic realm. So in um, before before I, I came to to Square, I was doing a PhD in funny enough distributed systems, which was in totally an academic pursuit. Uh, distributed systems. So I was actually publishing papers in uh, uh, Hashcash. Um, I was working on something that I called at the time computational resource tests, which now we call proof of work, and it's a way way better uh, marketing term for for it. Yeah, um, working on the same type of um, same type of problems, uh, protecting against civil attacks, Byzantine full tolerance, and so it really came from the academic realm. When I saw Bitcoin, I saw effectively uh, a solution to uh, a lot of the problems that I was working on, and applied to obviously 
um, effectively monetary policy and, and, and to sound money. And for me, I was working on different types of problems, but effectively the same verticals and distributed systems. So it's you're working on all this economic theory, but not for monetary policy. So you work no, on like not proof the of work theory. I was working on everything else but the economic theory. Oh, so can we dive about, into this? Let's talk yeah, about absolutely. that. So, so think about this. Think about how Bitcoin solves. One of the main problems that Bitcoin solves is civil identities. How do you ensure that people can actually have fake identities in the, in the system and how they all have a fair share of participation, right? The, the lottery tickets of the yeah. Bitcoin The money. applications for that are enormous. That's absolutely right. And so and they're enormous, enormous to the point where we were all working on identity. We were all working on how do we, for example, think about a network, a completely distributed network with no prior trust established, no PKI, public infrastructure, nothing like that. How do you self-organize nodes? That was the question. How do you self-organize nodes? Imagine that you go into a war zone and there's no infrastructure and you throw you know, 10,000 wireless nodes. How do, you, how, do, how do they self-organize in a way that a malicious node can take control of the network? So all of these mesh networking protocols, all these ad hoc networking protocols have to usually are based on quorums, so voting. But if a, a malicious node can uh, create infinite identities, how do you vote if you have infinite identities for the malicious nodes? So this is also the problem that Bitcoin was trying to solve, but obviously for monetary policy and for money. Did you guys not think when you were not think, but uh, was a solution not brought to the table, whereas if you make every participant in the system have a vested interest in the system, then the system won't fall apart and they'll organize in that way that you want them to. No, that was already in play. In fact, there's a security model called BAR, which is uh, Byzantine, adversarial, and rational. So BAR, B-A-R. And that was, uh, yeah, that was already being used primarily for peer-to-peer systems. So if you think about uh, something like uh, BitTorrent, there was already mechanisms that were tit for tat, and those were were effectively the early stages of the economic principles of distributed systems. Whether people are being rewarded, and whether a rational adversary has the incentives to maintain the security and to push the network towards um, a good equilibrium and a good state. And so we already consider this model. Byzantine are going to be arbitrary attackers, adversarial are actively trying to harm the system, and irrational or effectively rational participants. Sorry, they in, uh, no, no, in, no. Uh, but how do you how do you protect against a system where bad actors are acting rationally to maintain the integrity of the system for their own bad benefit? Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense, and that's actually part, part of the system. The system assumed that some of the nodes were going to operate arbitrarily. Some of the nodes are altruistic, so they're people that are just you know fans, and then some of the nodes are just economically rational. And therefore, they're adversarial in the sense that if you created a bad economic incentive, they're going to exploit the system. It's very interesting how that how that worked out. Um, and so, with Bitcoin, now to make that like transition, that comparison, and tell me tell me how this statement is is correct or incorrect with Bitcoin, um, because all of the things that you that that an actor could do in the system is so public and transparent. That if a bad actor came in and tried to do something bad, but it would keep the system working, then we would know about it because there are very finite things that you can do within Bitcoin. No, absolutely. And uh, that's actually one of the principles that was already being used way before Bitcoin, right? Of having public keys as your identity and having the whole network functioning with the signed messages where you could actually prove that people were acting maliciously. 
if uh, later on. So you can actually have this this principle around staking and slashing that we now have outside of proof of work. Um, all of those were kind of like the, the early stages of that were already all being considered. So how could we punish adversaries that were provably working incorrectly or against? Did you come up with any good solutions? I came up with a couple of interesting solutions. So think about it this way: one of the things that um, that I worked on was uh, a mesh network. So wireless networks would now without any uh, prearranged. Remind me to tell you about one after. Sounds good. Um, actually, so the way that we have proof of work, which I called computational resource tests, um, I also created a, a test that was a radio resource test. So I was effectively testing whether how many how many radios your 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 computer or your node have, and instead of giving you one hash, one vote in Bitcoin, I gave you one radio, one hmm. vote. And so you could only vote with the amount of radios that you have. Most computers just have one radio. That's right. And so basically, that was an economic incentive. It was expensive, already was expensive, and adding infinite numbers of radios to a computer is obviously expensive. And so I, I tied the economic model to not electricity, and electricity through the mechanism of uh, hash cash, so hashing. Uh, but uh, I tied the economic principle to the number of radios that you have. So all of us had to, there, there was a system and a protocol that also used uh, resource tests and computational resource tests to like elect the, the nodes and vote one, one node, one identity, one radio. You know, I was trying to, uh, I was going to write something down so that you finish speaking, but I was trying to explain to a friend of mine, Bitcoin, you know, the other day we were walking around the park with our dogs and I said, you have to understand for hundreds of years or thousands of years from from the age, from the days of, of putting wheels down a mountain to now with computers, there's one, there are very few predictable resources or predictable or you know, even with computers, like you talk about that radio, you can't really base monetary policy behind it because you can't predict what it'll cost that radio in the future. And you can't predict someone coming out with a more cost-effective way and then holding on to the technology to create a better actor. So Satoshi chose, um, what's the, what's this? I, I'm, I'm blanking. What's the security model of, of not the security model, but it's it two, SHA-256. Uh, chose this mechanism of, of basically saying that the only thing that can be predicted is how long it takes for anyone or a computer or a calculator to break a number to its lowest primes, right? That's the only thing in the world that I could think of that's been predictable and that will, for now, at least always be, even with quantum computing, you'll know how fast a quantum computer can break that prime number down. Yes, it'll be 50 times faster. Now tell me if anything I'm saying is wrong or inaccurate, by the way. Uh, I would make the following argument. I would make the argument that hashing was a proxy for computational power and computational power was a proxy for electricity. But we can, we can also make the argument that, you know, Satoshi didn't quite get it as right as he thought it was getting. Essentially, he, he underestimated the professionalization of the space. Essentially, Do you think so? Really... I don't think so. Everyone well, says ASICs, that. Well, yeah, ASICs, I, I, yeah, I mean, reading, reading the original paper and the way that it's actually described and the way that it contemplates obviously leaves a lot to, to be guessed. My, my instinct is that yeah. he was not expecting these many orders of magnitude of advantage in this the quickly. professionalization of the space this quickly. Uh, so, but he did... I think that he potentially foresaw that there will be computers down the road that will hash faster. And that's why the difficulty adjustments are all built into there. But the one thing that Bitcoin doesn't have, and I remember going back to 2012 
it was a, it was something that until I think like this year, the crypto industry never has had. And it was the biggest argument that I had from any VC or investor. And I said, Bitcoin is cool. It's great. Crypto is cool. And it's great. Cause this was like the early days of Ethereum still smart contracts. It's cool. It's great. You don't have credit in capital markets until you have an industry that can self-fund itself and grow and build and loan itself money and collateralize itself and take risks. And, and you have, you don't, we, this was pre-derivatives too. So you have no derivative markets. So until we had derivatives and DeFi, we should call the show derivatives and DeFi, you know, until you well, have that. Would, uh, <laughs> so we started, get you a lot more views for sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we started this. That's a great, I should, uh, there's a derivatives. And so we had derivatives in the past, like from 2017, 2019, but until DeFi, we never really had that. So how are you, did you see the same issues and how are you solving that now and bringing it all together now to Anchorage? Like, how did you all kind of bring it all together? Yeah, for us, DeFi is pretty interesting. I would say that one of the base foundations of Anchorage as an institutional platform was the fact that you were building a system that allowed you to have custody of these private keys that represent assets, you know, these crypto assets, but then you can use them. From day one, Anchorage never subscribed to this silly notion that cold storage hmm. was the way that the industry was going to move forward. You know, it's absolutely silly to think that a professionalized version of the crypto ecosystem is going to have people walking to data centers and going to safety deposit boxes yeah. or, you know, um, buried treasure with, uh, with private keys in it. So what do you think one, of proof of stake? I think proof of stake is a really good... I, I like experimentation. Like Anchorage is on the side of experimentation. And DeFi, actually, going back to DeFi, DeFi is effectively experimentation. It is a Cambrian explosion of all these financial building blocks, and they're being they're being tested, and they're being tested with the best way we know how to test them, which is you put you put money at stake. And so it's it's a fascinating way to see the evolution of these building blocks, their composability, how they're composed, and you know there's good things about DeFi, and there's not so good things about DeFi. Um, the, the good things are that we're testing out these new building blocks. We're testing out what works. We are really finding the edges of what we can do with the current blockchains. And we are you know, creating excitement around the space. But on the other end, the excitement and we're creating really good governance models, but they're still based on greed. And so the primary way that it's working is we found yet another way that is based on a return of actually bringing people. And to a certain extent, we're bringing some people from the outside that weren't here before DeFi was a big thing, but to another extent, we're also just recycling uh, funds from the people that are already part of the ecosystem. And a lot of the growth is based on wanting to obviously take lot positions and leverage. Um, and so, you know, there, there's good things and bad things there. What's your vision? Because when companies start and projects launch and you experiment, you got you almost like stake your place in, do you want to exist in the, in the crypto ecosystem only? Do you want to exist in the uh, financial services world and service crypto users, or do you want to like be an in-betweener? Seems like to me you're focusing on being that bridge or that, you know, partnerships between, like you have a partnership with Silvergate Bank, which is known as the top U.S. crypto bank, uh, banking most uh, crypto folks and, and, and companies and exchanges and et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, and I have a private thought on that. I think that Silvergate quietly asked the FDIC, if they could be that experimental bank, that's what I think. I think they had like a, a match tennis, maybe their CEO. I have to have him on the, on the show. I have not had him on, but I, maybe he was playing some tennis with, it's like, Hey, like, let us be this experimental because before Silvergate, you cannot get a bank account, right? right. Anywhere. And then all of a sudden a bank is like, Hey, 
come to us and FDIC was just mum? Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to, to answer your thing. question, it's not a bad thing. And to answer your question of like where Anchorage positions, it's we, we there's two things. We believe that the the right institution to allow other institutions to come into crypto is going to have two characteristics. Number one, it's going to have a platform that allows you to integrate into crypto without actually having crypto knowledge. That means all the things okay. that Anchorage allows you to do today. You know, we have um, a brokerage API. You can buy and sell through Anchorage, best execution. You can have asset movement. You can do custody. You can uh, do staking. You can um, use all these APIs to actually run pricing. So you can integrate with Anchorage without having to touch crypto assets and we'll do all the complex things for you. And you can do that across all assets. And so we believe that we should not dictate the client's investment strategy. So that's the platform aspect. Allows you to integrate crypto with the safety of a technological platform and with the integration of just an API. And then on the other vertical, you have financial services. A platform like this makes a lot of sense if it's a regulated platform. A platform like this makes a lot of sense if it can actually provide you these services in a way that they're integrated. And they make a lot of sense. So think about, you mentioned Silvergate. So we have this partnership with Silvergate. Silvergate is um, a capital provider to Anchorage Financing. What that means is that our clients at Anchorage, they already have crypto as um, under custody. And so if they want a U.S. dollar um, um, credit advance, so if they want a U.S. dollar loan, we can do so by collateralizing with Bitcoin. And so let's, let's think about the platform. What does that mean to have a platform? Well, the platform means that we have custody. The platform means we can move funds in a fast manner on chain, and we can actually drive these through an API. And what it means to have financial services? Well, it means that we can do this. We have the relationship with the bank capital provider. It also means that, for example, we can do automatic uh, collateral liquidation. We do our own risk uh, assessment of the collateral. And so it makes sense to have these two things integrated and financial services on top of a platform that is robust, safe, and that allows you to integrate with crypto. So that's really where it meets in the middle. We we believe that there's there's a huge advantage of having a vertically integrated platform that it's not just you know what people are calling um, the prime brokerage in crypto, not quite a prime brokerage yet, uh, but you know the prime brokerage stack services on top of a platform that allows institutions to come into crypto in an easy way, one API integration way. Okay, come on, this is so cool. This is the new BitPay card that I have in my hand, and I'm so excited to be finally having the new one that just came out. Now, guys, I've been using the BitPay card since 2016. Yeah, you heard that right. Way before I started Untold Stories way before BitPay became a sponsor of mine. I've been using this card and it literally became a way for me to have a bank account uh, for many, many years as, as a lot of people in crypto need banking, need better banking. The BitPay card is chock full of the coolest features. It's got contactless pay, uh, better rates and limits, no fees to convert from Bitcoin right onto the card, added in chip security. I mean, it's sexy. It looks good, unlike other cards. It's so easy to get. Just download the BitPay app on your phone, click the card icon, and you can do it right there. If you use the promo code CHARLIEJUNE20, your card is free. Remember, CHARLIEJUNE20. It's in the show notes. You can get a free card. So literally, just from listening to my show today, and make sure you actually listen, you can get a free card just by entering that code. So download the BitPay app, get the coolest card on the market, the best card on the market. I've been using it for over four years now. I know there are so many cards out there, but the BitPay brand is the oldest and longest running Bitcoin company in the world. I mean, that's who issues this card. This is the card you want to have. Remember, Charlie, June 20, 
Download the BitPay app on iOS or Android to sign up for the new card. You're going to freaking love it. I'm really excited when I get to talk about projects and companies that have been around since the early days of crypto and supporting those projects. In many parts of the world, banking services simply haven't advanced at the same rate as the adoptions of smartphones and the internet. Uh, Africa, Southeast Asia, it's they're skipping entire financial services over, they're skipping people over, and they're not even building out that infrastructure until cryptocurrency. We all know this, we've been hearing about it for so long. Electronium, a company based in the UK, decided to build an entire ecosystem based off of financial inclusion, empowering people, getting them involved, not just by working and by earning, but also by spending and being part of that community. Anytask.com is a company that's powered by Electronium, over half a million users, and you have the ability to do all these freelance projects, earn money, earn their tokens, and not only just earn ETN, but also be able to spend it on all these different things. What's what's crazy is that, and what's crazy good is that it's a, any task is attracting not just crypto people, but actual talented freelancers that are willing to take ETN in return for doing all this work. It, it's literally created this whole uh, ecosystem. And the thing is, it's not been just like a new novel idea. It's been around for a while. They're doing it. They're growing every single day. They're doing uh, millions of dollars in transactions. You got thousands and thousands of different people on the platform offering different services. And you should go check it out. It's it's so cool. The staff are great. The people are great. Everyone on the platform is so cool. Uh, according to ETN Everywhere, their official merchant directory, uh, ETN can be spent in over, I think it's 2,000 physical locations and online locations worldwide. You're talking about uh, in 140 countries, mobile airtime, um, shops, TVs, all these different things, not just being able to spend it. And so check them out, Electronium anytask.com support my sponsors they're so cool and i'm excited for you guys to check it out oh my god there are hundreds of blockchain projects out there but one thing that unites them all is the need for power think about that the the need for mining uh whether it's for staking or actual proof of work mining they all need power at the same time many oil and gas projects not crypto projects but oil and gas companies they're wasting the gas they extract because it's too expensive to pipe it to the market so here we are, we have two problems and a perfect solution. Permian Chain places industrial grade data centers and are mining for Bitcoin and crypto at these spots. They can offer blockchain projects abundant processing at a reasonable price. And that's what they do. They're giving crypto asset miners an efficient way to, to mine. They're giving companies that need power to secure their blockchains the ability to have uh, resources and oil and gas companies get revenue. It's so cool. They think it's a neat way to get together. Make sure you check them out, permianchain.com or permianchain.com forward slash Charlie. How do you handle KYC then? We, we handle KYC as you'd uh, do in the traditional, traditional but if world it's a, finance. It's not so are you talking about like developer-facing, API-based, everything that you want to do in crypto, not just like transact with it, but also be able to do like uh, loans and, and things like that built into it? I, I, that that is definitely the direction that we're going. Uh, there are certain, some components of that that are not there yet today, but that's definitely the direction that we're going. We want to be able to allow people to just integrate with, with the systems and 
take advantage of these uh, financial services. And in terms of um, the, the KYC, I mean, that, that is that is very traditional in the traditional world. And yeah. it's, it's actually not different. There's nothing fundamentally different. In crypto, as you're well aware, uh, one, one of the different things is around, um, is around actually blockchain um, compliance. So tracking what's happening on the blockchain, yeah. um, tracking every, every single transaction. And, and that's, that's different in the traditional world because you know, we don't have... Uh, communication protocols yet between participants in the system to exchange uh, information. So a lot of it has to be done using third parties. You're from Portugal. And Portugal, obviously, is a nation of seafarers. You guys love the sea. You guys love boating. I'm a boat captain myself. I love boating, too. Um, I actually learned how to boat from, from my Portuguese friend. He grew up on the island of... I'm literally blanking right now. I'm going to Google map it. He used to sail when he would, What? A Portuguese island? Like the yeah, yeah. He used to sail when he was 12 years old to the mainland just to like party and stuff like that. But I'm like oh, wow. forgetting the name. Well, of either Madeira or the Azores. Madeira, yes, that's what it is. Okay. So. Gorgeous islands. And he, uh, he's actually a, he's a charter captain now in the British Virgin Islands. He's just chilling and he bakes bread too. He's a baker on the boat. Oh God. <laughs> Bake sourdough bread while he's captaining the ship. Did he pick but, it up while uh, during COVID or uh, this is the before? <laughs> I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing. It's it's cool. It's cool. Portuguese people are cool. But anyways, I, um, where I'm getting at this is that I've learned, so, uh, you'll be familiar with this. All boats have radios and radios don't go very far. You know, they go, I don't know, 10 kilometers or whatever, 15, 20 kilometers, depending on the size of the radio. Boaters, and I'm th- think of it like a mesh network. Boaters rely on other boaters to relay messages. I can be, I theoretically, theoretically, I could probably send a message from Florida to Mexico just on hopping boats. You know, hey, boat, hop, boat, hop, boat, hop. I've done it. I've sent messages down to Venice, Florida from where I live in Sarasota, 10, 20, 30, 40 miles, just hopping people, spreading the message. Why do people do that? It's for emergencies. But everyone does it and you know that well, you don't know, but think of it like a blockchain. How do you know that when your message is being hopped to the next person, that it's being the same message? Okay, let's think about like a blockchain, right? If, if one person even alters the time of that message, it's actually the perfect way to describe the Byzantine general's problem, right? Uh, but in, in, in the boating world, uh, there is a common uh, incentive, not just for like the current, not to say like the next boater or the boater after, Hopefully, you know, in a perfect system, he's not gonna gonna lie or or change something at my detriment, not because of the now, but because in the future that boater can be out there and there's like a karma aspect. So I'm almost saying like, how can we like compare and contrast that and quantify that into like a digital system? Where it's just fun to talk about, at least. Yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, let me bring it back to BitTorrent. BitTorrent did have a tit for tat system. When you start downloading a torrent file, you can you have nothing to contribute to the system. Nothing. You have no files. You have no past history. Yeah. The people on the DHD have never seen you, and yeah, they are friendly towards you, and so they experiment by sending you some blocks. And then uh, what that ends up happening is that they'll send you more blocks if you send them blocks. And so there's a different for tat system where the system reaches an equilibrium because a lot of the actors are, some of the actors are altruistic and a lot of the actors are rational. They know that at some point, they want the system to work because at some point you'll need it. Exactly. And so I love how I was seeing that in like real life. And I've, I've told that my, my mackerel coin prison story so many times, but there's all that economic theory that I was dealing with in there. 
Um, but it's so cool to see that, especially in the boating world. Um, aircraft do the same thing when they have to land together um, and their air- aircraft control is down or it's the nighttime or whatever. They all talk to each other and have to prioritize and figure it out. It's really cool. Yeah, we used to get into ham radio. There's a couple of satellites that actually do uh, file and voice relay. Really? So you can, yeah, you can actually uh, relay files or images or whatever to these satellites. I would that... love to get into ham radio, and I'm surprised there's no crypto ham radio group. Is there? I'm going to write uh, that down. No, there definitely there definitely is. Uh, and your call sign should definitely start with CS, Charlie, Charlie Sierra. I need to, I'm going to go get my, you need to get a license, right? I'm going to break my rule. I, when I was sitting in, when I was in jail, I told myself I'm never going to do anything that you need a license to do. Oh, wow. Even be a barber, but I'll break my own rule to become a ham radio (laughs) operator. You could, yeah. uh, I don't recommend becoming an illegal uh, ham radio operator. No, I don't want to do that. Could you imagine what, what brought you back in jail? Oh, fuck. And I operated that ham radio illegally. I should have known. I broke my own. uh, That could break like a probation because you break any, like, when you're on probation, I'm on probation anymore, but when you're on probation, you're so worried of getting even a parking ticket. I would report parking tickets to my probation wow. officer. And he'd be like, Charlie, leave me alone. Unless you talk <laughs> to a police officer and there's like, it's negativity involved, then you call me. But if you're just waving to the cop on the street, stop <laughs> calling me. I would like call my probation officer because <laughs> I was yeah, so I mean, scared. Yeah, it's, it, must be, it must be hard. No, it's all good now, though. Um, but back then it was, it's cool because, um, I had a, another guest on the show and he named his company after a, uh, Loki after, a an algorithm, like an old, uh, um, one of the older, like cipher, cipher algorithms. And, uh, everyone thinks that it's named after like a Norse, like a mythology God or something. Yeah. Uh, where did you come up with Anchorage? Yeah, Anchorage, there was a couple of requirements. So let me, let me tell the story of how it ended up happening and all the connections. Um, yeah, and who are some cool people Square, that you met along the way? Yeah, when uh, actually, so uh, Nathan, my co-founder, was, was you know, the instigator of a lot of this. I met him, the, the, we joined Square the same week. So I met him as soon as I joined Square. And so we've actually been working together for, for 10 years. Um, and in a way, the Anchorage story goes all the way back to the first week at Square. Uh, while I was at Square, Nathan and I were, were leading the security team. And one of the things that we came up with was something that we called crypto anchors. Okay. So crypto anchor is a cryptographic system that anchors your data to a data set. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, imagine an attacker. There's compromises and hacks all day long. And they exfiltrate the data from the data centers, right? Your credit cards, your personal information, PII, what, what have you. What we created was based on hardware security modules and um, HMAX inside of hardware security modules, we created a system where the data, the consumer data, could only be read while inside of the data center. And there was an actual physical anchor, um, which was a cryptographic anchor that was inside of a data center that you needed access to to actually be able to read any information. So what that effectively does is that all of your database is now useless. Because the database can only be read if you are in presence of this crypto anchor. And if you exfiltrate the database as an attacker and you steal it, you can't do anything with it. Also. This is similar to like how it. Apple File Vault works now, right? Like if, yes, if very you don't similar concept. Okay. Very similar concept. And so we call them crypto anchors because, you know, it's an anchor. There's a cryptographic anchor that anchors the data to your data center. And this, oh, this actually, is pre-crypto. Like this was, yeah. you're using the term crypto. 
That's right. That's right. Crypto anchors. And uh, there's a, there's a blog post online that you can take a look. Uh, the goal is multifold. But one of the things that forces is that if the attacker can't go offline, the attacker has to stay in your data center. And if the attacker is staying in your data center, then it's making a lot of noise because it's trying to exfiltrate information. And so now you have more chances to detect the attacker. So that's it's part of the concept. How do you prevent that key from ever leaving the data center, though? Uh, what you do is you use hardware security modules in a way very similarly to what we do at Anchorage. So Anchorage, again, comes from the experience of Square, the experience of Docker, the experience of my PhD and treatment systems. It really is the perfect Venn diagram of my skill set. And wow. today we use very similar concepts. And one of the concepts of Anchorage is that we actually run the business logic. So the thing that checks that Charlie is Charlie and that Charlie has access to uh, this particular vault and to this particular, particular wallet is running inside the hardware security module. The code is inside of the hardware security module. So the key is alongside mm. the code that protects the key. And at Square, we were doing a very early version of that, where we had an HMAC key that was only, only lived inside of the hardware security module, and it could never leave. How big can a hardware security module be, though? In terms of, so think about it logically. Like, okay, you know, I'm thinking like physical of, size. I'm trying to like imagine this and how it plays out. Yeah, a hardware security module uh, these days is the size of a uh, graphics card. Oh, it's not, okay. Yeah, it's uh, actually, it connects to the PCI slot. A lot of them do. There's also um, net HSMs or HSMs that are kind of like more like appliance-like. So think about like a rack mounted server, uh, but a, lot, a large majority of them are just PCI slots. That is I'm so fortunate. Like a graphics card. I'm so fortunate to do this show because as you're talking about like people, places and things, I'm like, I talk... I talked to the CEO of BitTorrent on this show. I had Bram on the show. Yeah. Uh, another company you just, oh, uh, um, Hardware Security, YubiKey. I had Stina, the founder right. of Yubico, on this show. Like, it's so cool. Here I'm sitting in my little studio in Florida. I get to interview like you, like the coolest people in the world. I'm so fortunate. Yeah, by the way, Stina and Bram are just absolutely amazing. And if you want to talk about like incentive systems, you know, it's kind of fascinating that Bram came from the oldest distributed system or one of the most successful distributed systems out there. Uh, the torrents and he was already like doing incentives yeah. and now he's you know like changing that and uh, turning it into chia uh, which is a really cool project she is uh, so cool and it's great to see like uh that him him kind of coming into it because he was uh when i first met him he was still very skeptical about bitcoin i met him in mexico at satoshi roundtable and we just by chance got like sat next to each other and we just started talking and he's uh when you got it when you get to know him he becomes more social but he's a little bit like we all are a little bit quiet and so uh, he just, we just were chatting. I was eating. I don't remember what I was eating. And, uh, and I was like, so what's your name? He goes, my name is Bram. I said, Bram what? He goes, Bram Cohen. I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, man. Nice to meet you. And, yeah, he's, he's and then he walked away. He's like, he didn't even say anything after that. He just walked away. I was like, all right. I mean, if, you, if you want to get him going, there's a lot of ways to get Brem going for sure. Uh, you dive deeply into the technical aspects and, you know, you have, he yes. becomes the chattiest person in the room. Um, the last time, or one of the last times I was, I was with him, we started talking about BDS, um, which, by the way, talking back to the, uh, uh, the original uh conversation that we were having around what could Satoshi have done that would actually have have been more yeah. constant across time outside of hashes that got professionalized, you know, PDFs as a, as a whole, um, as a whole industry and as a whole um, Wait, PDF science now. VDFs. Oh, VDF. At least a PDF. Verifiable delay functions. So effectively, um, they it's a verifiable delay function. This function is going to always take the same time, regardless of where it's executed. So well, I, mean, I understand the concept to, behind that, but how do you not prove that, but how do you 
guarantee that. You, I mean, some people try different ways of guaranteeing. So I don't think there's ever a guarantee and nobody can ever guarantee you a guarantee. You can can guarantee how long it's going to take to hash to prime numbers though. What you do is uh, you create the most efficient version of it and you try to get to as close to a proof of that as possible. So you, 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 you show that the, the fastest hardware, the fastest ASIC that can be created to solve this problem is with this particular structure. And then that is actually your base timing. And so you've oh, already professionalized. Cool. Yeah, you professionalize up front and you say, actually, this is this is the time. Hey, you just brought up something I wanted to ask you. Um, and this is, I don't even know the answer to this. How were, what were the applications for ASICs pre-Bitcoin? So for those who don't know, when the, the, the progression of Bitcoin mining went from computing, you, know, you could mine Bitcoin on your computer, then you eventually you can mine Bitcoin on your graphics cards. And then these slowly overlapped each other. And then FPGA boards were a thing for a very short period of time, but they like drastically increased uh, graphics card mining. And then ASICs came out. I remember I had mined on the second ASIC ever in the world. I mined on the second ASIC. And, uh, um, but what were the, so the way Yifu explained ASICs to me, he's like, see that it would look like a normal computer tower, but it mined Bitcoin 30 times as fast. And he said to me, this is an application-specific integrated circuit machine. This is a Bitcoin-specific integrated circuit machine. I said, what does that mean? He said, this thing eventually eventually is a fucking paperweight if Bitcoin goes away tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so why would someone invest in millions of dollars of supply chains to build these for other industries? What, what, what were their application? Yeah, think about there's so many things that are either computationally expensive or that just don't need complicated software and that only have one, one purpose. Um, you can sell, I mean, think about a, a car application. Cars have very high integrity systems that you need to do one thing and they're going to do one thing forever. Um, and so ASICs become a really good way of, um, of replicating that particular that, that, that particular system that you have. How? And, th- and, and really, I don't know if we're digressing. I don't understand how the hardware aspect of it, that because it's an integrated circuit, right? Like That's right. It, it does a job with more efficiency and more integrity than a piece of software. Now, I know in theory, but can we dive into a little bit more? Yeah, think about, think about how, you know, a general, you have a general purpose um, processor. Uh, there's a sliding scale between how, um, how flexible this and how programmable this processor is okay. in speed. And so you have a sliding scale and you, on one end, you have the ASICs, right? And uh, in the middle, you have GPUs and then you have kind of like general, general processors. Um, and and what, what it means is that you can always make decisions at the hardware level that are optimized if you know what the workload is. And general processors can't really pre-optimize anything because they might run anything. GPUs can optimize a lot because you're telling it that you're running this particular payload. And so they already have very limited functionality outside of that. And ASICs are the exact opposite. Uh, or the ASICs are basically the, let's burn the software into hardware effectively. It's not quite what's happening. But let's burn the software into, into the hardware. And let's just say, hey, this is the only thing you're going to do. And since we're, all, we're all computers ASICs back in the day? Like the first computers were all essentially ASICs, right? Because they all really did one thing. No, not particularly. Um, they, they all had programmable. They all had programmable modules um, okay. in, in CPUs. Uh, I think you can you can think about like you know an integrated circuit. They were all integrated circuits, yes, um, but they were not all, not all necessarily. We wouldn't call them ASICs, but they were all circuits, and a lot of them have very specific yeah. functions for it. This is so cool. What can you? Is there anything that you can do with a Bitcoin ASIC if like proof of work went away tomorrow? 
Uh, password cracking would be the, really? the, the best you can't one. re no, you can't re Yeah. Just, just password cracking. Anything that does hashes, you can't really repurpose um, any of it. Wow. GPUs are different, right? So that's why GPUs are so much, so much more flexible and people sometimes prefer, even though they get a huge performance hit to have GPUs because, you know, they're used for so many things. Tell me, tell me how my uh, listeners can, can, follow like what you're going to be working on and, 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 and Anchorage and, and, uh, kind of these conversations, like everyone's heads are probably spinning. I know mine is I learned something new today, <laughs> which doesn't happen as often as I'd want it to, which, so yeah. thank you for that. I appreciate that. No worries. I mean, um, a lot well, of these follow you. Uh, everybody can follow me on Twitter at Diogo Monica and, um, the best place for you to find Anchorage is anchorage.com. Amazing. And we'll, we'll have it all in the show notes. We didn't, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Libra. We can, you know what? Let's let's continue for five minutes, really quick. Um, how did that kind of all come together? Uh, I'm just I'm just curious. Yeah, in the very early days when it was essentially just uh, Morgan and David, um, they were looking for they were looking for people that had deep expertise in security, cryptography, and distributed systems. You know, we were, we were the right team at their, at that time. There were two people, and I think we we're eight. Um, yeah. And so we very early on started participating, contributing. What's and going we on with that? Like, is there active development going on? Are people, oh, do you guys absolutely. speak once a week? Uh, we, we speak way more than once a week. Oh. Uh, a lot oh. of my time is invested in this. Uh, it's growing. How do I get in the pre-sale? <laughs> There's no pre-sale. Can you send me a sap, please? <laughs> it's a very different type of project, oh, as no. you can see from the people involved. Uh, but, but you can actually follow it on GitHub. I know, and, I'm teasing. And if you follow it on GitHub, you see that the code is, is you know, it's fantastic. As is a blockchain. It is, it is a beautiful piece of software. And it's probably the, the most well-tested, the most rigorous, the one with the most interesting Byzantine full-tolerance algorithm out there. I was very it critical of, of it when it first came out. I was extremely critical. As you can understand, I get very, like, not worried, but, uh, you know, this whole industry is my baby. For the sole reason was I was nervous that Libra would do the job of teaching people what crypto is without being a real crypto. I didn't want Libra to be people's first foray into crypto when it's not, when it potentially wasn't going to be. And this was when we didn't really know what it was going to be. Now we, now we know, like we're talking about GitHub and we're talking about taking all of the positive developments of blockchain technology and kind of like taking the smartest people in the room and bringing it all together in really like a distributed way where the people that were first involved are very like uh, not involved anymore. So it like, we talk about Bitcoin and crypto being on this path to decentralization. There are a lot of cryptos, we could end off with this, a lot of cryptos blatantly say, we don't want to be decentralized. Uh, there are the ripples of the world. And I can say that because the founders are my friends that up live on the spectrum of being, uh, um, they're all, all, all all cryptos operate, you know, Bitcoin is on the path of decentralization, but nothing's fully decentralized. When Libra first came out, I was worried that it was going to stake its flag on the, we are going to not be a decentralized cryptocurrency. And there, and I don't believe those should be cryptocurrencies at all, but I am formally taking that back now and saying that uh, I was wrong in that. And think about all the contributions.